Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. All right, we are live. Car McDonald, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Thank you, Eric. Yes, I am extremely, thank you. Thank you for coming on and doing this. I have uh, had multiple conversations with you over the last, you know, six to 12 months, I would say. And A, I know how busy you are. Uh, <laughs> I know the, A little bit. <laughs> extreme demand on your time and the project that you're working on, uh, you know, project maybe doesn't do it justice due to the scale and potential of what it is. Uh, it's, it's humbling when I think about it and it's a pleasure to get you on here and we can finally talk about it. And I can ask you so many questions I've been meaning to ask you anyway. So, uh, like all great interviews, let's start with your background. How'd you get to be the founder, CEO, the everything of Bessie at this point, um, besides the products, of course, uh, we'll get into it, but yeah, please give us your background. Yeah, so uh, thanks again, Eric. We have been sort of trying to get this into the calendar for a little while, and I do appreciate your patience on this. Uh, dead of winter sometimes is the easiest time to do it. Can't uh, sure. Not as much time on the road. Uh, looking at where we are today, um, people are sort of wondering where we came from and how we got here. A number of years ago, we were looking at transitional economies. Um, so my background comes from the resource sector. I actually, my first job was in a coal mine. Uh, so as a pit geologist working in, you know, open pit mining, uh, we there's always been an element to that that need that grows and changes. And I went from mining into oil and gas into odd decommissioning projects, and then one back up in coal mining back in uh, about 2014. And with that process, the world has started to change, recognizing there is a transition away from fossil fuels and uh, use of coal as a power source, metallurgical is a different story. But what we were looking at is not the product itself, coal, but the community. What happens when a resource community loses its resource base, be it coal, oil and gas, doesn't matter, any of the resource bases, quite often what you see are these true ghost towns. You lose good people, you lose businesses, you lose school, you lose the infrastructure and that ability to support the rural area around it. Like the economy really starts to cascade downward. So what we were looking for was, what do we put in? What, how do you change or transition, you know, from a resource sector into tomorrow, knowing where tomorrow was going? And that's really where we started, to, where we stumbled onto what is now um, the energy junction and the technology that was up there previously held uh, by, by AACT. So, you know, the, the green power hub. What we were looking at, this started to fit into that model, utilization of people and resources, and it did provide us with something that was multi-purpose. It was going to be able to be community-owned, and that was huge for us, that when you look at small resource-based towns, they own their world. They own their community. They are, you know, they are ingrained. It, you know, they two, three, four generations. What do we do to keep that moving? and allow them to stay there and build and thrive again. So that's really what this, this that's where this came from. Um, we stumbled on this. We stumbled on it at a, at a technology meeting or in, I don't even know what you want to call it, like an open house, almost like a science fair of different technologies that were in the market. And we stumbled onto it. And it took us a while to get our head around what this was. And we thought, okay, it's a good fit. It's a nice fit. Uh, but getting there has been a long road, a very long road to get it from what it was when we first saw it to where it is today. Yeah. 
it's it there's so much to it i mean like you said to wrap your head around it is uh-huh. is a tough thing to do it's a fun thing to do but it's a tough thing to do and you know i've explained i've attempted to explain to many people exactly everything that this thing does and even when i'm explaining it i'm wowed i'm like yeah like w- what's the downside here i i don't see any you know there's so much there's so much good that comes out of this and you know let's let's do our best to explain everything to the people listening and i guess if you think this is a good idea, maybe we start with the products, the end products themselves, and then we can work backwards sure. into the organic carbon engine and and what this does to communities and, and the benefits to everybody worldwide. Well, and I think that's probably a great place to start because one of the things that we needed to be able to establish was an economy for these communities. What What is it that they're going to do? What is it that they do? What is it that they sell? What is it that they grow? Because that's where these communities were coming from. They had a resource. They had a product. So now the products that come out of these systems are designed to fix, rebuild, and help soil grow again. So everything from reducing compaction to holding and retaining more water, bringing amino acids and strength or health back into the soil so that plants grow better, they grow stronger, they have a higher resilience to them without adding any chemical and without having to worry about what we refer to as how close you are to a stream or water body, proximity to waterways. So these products that are generated or developed by the system, they're all natural. There are no chemicals in the facility at all. The only thing that walks in that door that would classify as a chemical is probably my coffee in the morning. (laughs) Uh, But what this is, is it is a naturalized system and the products are natural. So they are organic, they come from nature, and we blend them together. So we have two or three liquids and a solid. So maybe we'll start with the biochar. I think everybody has an idea of what biochar is. So maybe we, we start there. The biochar that we produce comes from is the interruption of existing waste streams, be it wood waste, agricultural waste, but it is a lignin waste that comes from, so it has a biomass to it. It is a fibrous material, and we char and what comes out is biochar. Well-known on the market, our biochar sits at about 75% carbon. So it has a really high carbon content to it, and biochar in itself helps to retain water, uh, and it helps to reduce compaction. So it has a great place both in agriculture, uh, land remediation, land farming, and in composting. You know, it helps to do, it creates little houses for microbes, if you were. It's almost the honeycomb of the system. One of the downsides that can be with biochar is that it has a fairly high pH. So as soils get older and or have issues, your pH comes up, and that means your plants don't grow as well. So what we do is we actually soak our biochar in a biostimulant that we grow and develop in the facility. And what that does is it drops the pH. So our biochar goes into the ground, with a more suitable pH for the development and growth of plants. So we bring that pH down a little bit. When it rains, uh, the the biochar holds the water, the water and the biostimulant go into the soil, and we maintain that pH that we want. That's that's the primary product that comes out, and that's a biostimulant, and it's in a liquid form. One of the other products that we have is earlier on in the phase, and it's, it's on the market known as wood vinegar. Now, wood vinegar has been around 100 years, and it comes in and out of the market, and it sort of sits on the edge. And the reason is, is that it's a low producer. It doesn't produce a high volume during the biochar production. And if you don't produce biochar at the ideal temperature, you don't get it. But what wood vinegar does, it's a natural pH. It's a really low pH. We're talking 3.4 to 4 pH on that acid end. It smells like a barbecue. It's got this really rich wood smoke to it. And you'll see it uh, often in kitchen in kitchen stores and cuisine stores where they they use it as a smoke is what they quite often see it. And that's where it's had its biggest retail market in, in North America for a while. But what the wood vinegar does is allows us to work within the biostimulant and the biochar to in to help target soil needs. So if you have a really high pH um, it's depleted. We can actually take that soil horizon, bring it back down to a, to a margin 
where you can now establish plants and roots. So we can actually fix issues in the soil that are high pH or ones that are low pH by adding the biochar. So what we get is almost a mixing bowl effect of the three products. And that in itself answers one of the biggest questions out there. How do we grow more food? How do we improve our soil? How do we prevent soil erosion? How do we reestablish industrial landscapes and, you know, and, and fix, you know, closed mines and, and oil and gas footprint faster so that we can actually get to that point where we can grow something from it and it's and we're not seeing soil erosion and all of those other issues that, that come with soils for from soils that aren't holding plants. Well said. Well said. So, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, you know, that it seems so generally applicable to everything, right? Anything within agriculture, remediation, all that. When you're looking at, you know, maybe some of the more um, recognizable applications that people would understand, like, what, what are you seeing so far? Like, how is this being, how are these products being applied right now? So, more products are being applied, urban gardens. That's one of the biggest ones. The urban gardens, yeah, the community gardens. Uh, where you take the product and you add it to water. So one of the biggest things with this is that you don't need anything special. Uh, you don't need to handle it. If it falls over, your dog can drink it. It's okay. <laughs> one of the things you're going to have to get used to are the bumblebees. We, we've noticed they increase. It's a big pollinator. It, uh, it's, it's got an algae base to it. So we do see a high. Uh, bumblebees will be your new best friend. But we're seeing it in urban gardens. We're seeing it in greenhouses where... The producers are wanting to be able to uh, retain more water. Uh, we're seeing a faster uh, growth time from seed to to, uh, to flower. It's a shortened time. We're also seeing the soil healthier after a harvest. So we're seeing it in the greenhouse. Uh, we've got some egg uh, product um, rotations out there, which are three and four on some of the agricultural side. And then we get into the mine reclamation and the closure of areas. And I think that's where we get into really changing something from what we refer to in industry as dirt to getting it into a producing horizon and not worrying about what we're doing to the aquatic environment that that it's next to. So we've got three or four uh, reclamation projects out there that are uh, helping to reestablish your vegetation, your riparian areas, mine closure. We've got it in greenhouses. We've got it in uh, urban farms. And of course, we've got things, uh, people just you know using it at home. So I think we've basically got the full breadth of the market now uh, using the product and providing with feedback on a regular basis. And I don't have a green thumb. I don't have a green thumb at all. Uh, I have tomatoes all year round in my house. All year round, I've got tomatoes growing. I've got uh, this past summer, I had 12 foot uh, sunflowers. And I don't, you know, I have a little backyard. I don't have a large, you know, large garden or anything like that. But what I do get from it is the ability to produce and grow vegetables and fruit um, in a really small space. And I'm getting a higher yield and it grows faster because our summers up here, they're short. They are much shorter than what most people are used to. When you've only got 12 weeks, or 16 weeks, you need that seed to flower to happen faster without harming the soil. And we should probably tell people where you are, because I don't think- I'm in Edmonton. I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. So, yeah. so I think we're about, what, nine hours apart, straight line, I think is where we are. And it's a long nine hours, too. It's, a, <laughs> it's a long nine hours. I've, I've driven my way up there. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's truly incredible what the products can do, especially, you know, for- um, for yield and, and producing high quality foods and, and with the soils too. And obviously something that's on everybody's mind nowadays is climate change. And when you, in, in context of climate change, how are these products um, offering an additional solution to the, the global issues that we see, not just local, but global? Yeah, so fundamentally how we make the products and how they are developed inside the facility is our life cycle analysis. Uh, we look at the immediate region around where facility is built and, and operated in a community, and we divert waste from that area that normally goes to, say, landfill or slash piles and forestry that could be burned. So we interrupt that process where those emissions and greenhouse gases would be released. The products themselves, during the process, we have almost no emissions from the system. We capture our thin gases 
and use them to heat the facility. Um, but the biochar itself, when you produce the biochar, for every one ton of biochar you produce, you sequester, rule of thumb, is about three tons of carbon. So you're putting carbon right back into the soil. Beyond that, the biostimulant is grown from algae. And everybody knows, thinks about blue-green algae, you know, the, the pond scum, if you will. That's what we are. We are, we, we, we raise and we're algae farmers. It's the funniest thing ever, and it's fun. But one of the things algae love is CO2. And so we actually use the CO2 emission and we feed the algae with it and it increases their bloom. And then we harvest that algae. And what happens is the emissions that come off of digesting anything like that, like from an anaerobic digester that you see in agriculture, the big bins out in the field, we remove that from the system as well. So what happens is we have this very naturalized process where we're not generating emissions to create a product that's beneficial to the soil. And, you know, our next big step is getting away from plastic. That's our, that's our big step is it, COVID is not helping. Finding products and availability, but for us, that's the next piece. The ability to package everything in something that when it shows up at a farm, at a mine, in your backyard, you don't have to recycle it. And if, if it is something that's reusable, we've given you a means to refill it and reuse it and repurpose it. So, you know, our, for us, these products are not just about what they do, how they do good for the soil, but the fact that they're not creating footprint. That is our goal, is that products go into the soil without creating something more in the atmosphere. And, and really sort of focusing on that, that closed loop cycle. That is, you know, it's probably been the hardest, it's the hardest part of the equation to do, but it's probably the most important part of the equation when it comes to the product. Yeah, it is. And, you know, when, when we were talking prior to recording, we were joking about, I'm, I know enough to be dangerous, right? And so I'm going to say something that's probably dangerous, but I may be right. I mean, to simplify it for people who are listening, I mean, really one of the, the, the fundamental issue of what we have with climate change now is we have too much carbon in the atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And through the products, and we'll get into in a, in a second because we've been dancing around it of how it's actually all made. Um, but if I can simplify and tell me if I'm, you know, oversimplifying, but we have too much carbon in the air and this whole system from production down to the products takes the carbon and shoves it back into the earth, right? One way or another. And that helps solve a huge problem. Am I wrong in in that simplification? You're you're not wrong. So we take that CO2 emission and we also make sure that one of the other things that we talk a lot about is methane emission. You know, methane is the other piece that's out there and methane is naturally generated during decomposition, you know, so wastewater treatment plants, anaerobic digestion, it's out there. We use that as our fuel. So you're not wrong in, we take that and we put it back into the system. So it's very much like uh, a human body, if you will. What we take in, we capture and we bring, you know, we bring everything back in. We try to limit the amount that is coming out as not beneficial. So, you know, it is, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it, it's fun to play, I have to admit. It to work with something where you're replicating processes that exist in nature, you know, from the very end, you know, final filters and and naturalizing the whole process, it really is uh, quite dynamic. Uh, and but the benefits at the end are fantastic. And I guess the other piece is, is that it's not done in a lab. We're not using, you know, you're not going to walk into one of these facilities and see 18 microscopes and beakers and everything else, you're going to see um, aquatic fish tanks. You know, you're going to see little fish tanks and you're going to see water coming in and out. You're going to see ponds full of uh, slimy green algae and big trees. And then you're going to see, you know, you're going to see some piping and stuff, but nothing that's weird and outside of the norm that's already in existence in industry. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I can feel the energy that you have for this. And I know how many like, hours of sleep you've you've lost in 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 building this so far and Mm -hmm. uh it's it's really cool and it's it's super exciting i mean it's when i start drifting down the path of thinking about what this can do you know and so let's just let's let's play this game with me too let's say if we just took humans out of the situation for a second on the planet right how long would it take the earth to naturally get back to normal right carbon starts coming back into the soils, you know, that, that system, and then compare that to how fast we can do it with this type of total 
system that we're talking about? Yeah, so I think if we take it down to what does the system do on a on a on a numerical scale? So the processes and the products we're creating, uh, the quality of it, the the nutrient load, and all of that, we do in seven to fourteen days. So we create uh, a complete sink, if you will, carbon sink that that adds value to the soil in seven to fourteen days. It really depends on which product you're looking at, um, and you know the biochar itself is daily. You know, so we're creating that, but the process is very short. It is hundreds, if not thousands of years, if, if nature is required to um, decant out a pond and allow those layers to naturally decompose in the bottom of a pond. So time, pressure, and heat creates that nutrient load, that heat, those heat bogs that you see that are rich and you can smell it. We're creating a liquid peat that goes back into the soil. But peat bog in nature and peat and that heavy nutrient load, hundreds if not thousands of years of ideal conditions. So if you think about Alberta, it's a little cold up here. You know, sure, it's got a really great long dormant period, uh, but at the same time, it still needs some of that heat and it takes time. So on scales of magnitude, we're way down at the small end of the be able to do this without interrupting and taking energy from the existing community around it. I think that's the other side, is we're not drawing from the grid to do this. We're using the energy within the system to benefit the system. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you're, people are going to get It's incredible. It, it really is. It's, it's totally incredible. So, you know, I think we've teased the listeners enough about, well, how is this thing actually made? We've talked about the algae. We've talked about, you know, the, the aesthetics of the actual, you know, I, Organic carbon engines, right, is now the the official name of these things. Talk to us about these these amazing pieces of machinery. Yeah, so when we talk about it, we call them. Uh, so there, there's a primary piece of this, the the organic carbon engine, and that's really where the biochar piece comes from. And and it's sort of the primary input for one half of the equation. So we'll we'll start there. So within the energy junction, we have uh, we take the woody biomass or the uh, agricultural waste, whatever that is. And as a company, we put it into a mixing bowl and we take a look at it so that what you're getting out of it is a high quality biochar uh, from existing waste streams. It goes into an upper chamber, uh, very much like a big oven. And in that oven, it travels for 30 minutes. And off of that oven, you will get some emissions, you will get CO2 that we capture and we pipe back into the into the primary building. But during that process, we literally milk the wood, if you will. And that's where the wood vinegar comes from. It is a slower process. It is not something that is that you can flush. Uh, when you do a flash pyrolysis system, you burn that off. That actually goes into, into emissions and it leaves the system. We take the time to milk the wood and capture the wood vinegar, which becomes a product uh, and part of the product stream. Once it's gone through the upper chamber, it's, it's completely dry now, and it drops into a higher temperature chamber uh, in the absence of oxygen, and we char it. So you get very much uh, a soft, friable biochar. The biochar is, you can grab it and you can crush it with your hands. But when you look at it, it's very much a honeycomb, almost like a beehive. So it's very friable like a neck, but the structure, because of how it's designed, it has it's very firm on its own. So the biochar is produced at the front end and all of that gas, what we call thin gas in industry, is captured. We take that thin gas and it goes through our energy exchange system or the Q energy packet. And from there, that's how we power our system. And depending on the number of buildings you want or other attachments to your agriplex or your energy junction, we'll determine how much biochar or feedstock we have at the front end. So our intent is to, what you produce is you. We are not looking to do excess. Um, and that, that's probably a big piece of it. That's the carbon engine at the front end. Any questions on that? It's, it's, yeah, I guess for clarification, you know, we, we mentioned the fuel sources that you're talking about. It's kind of, you know, wood chips, things like that. But, you know, when your mind starts to go out to all the possibilities, what are some of the most exciting sources of, of that fuel for the system? 
We refer to it as the energy biscuit. Uh, there are great. There's there's been a lot of work done in in, um, in the in the European Union and within the UK where they blend multiple different types of feedstock to get to what we refer to as the BTU, the, the the heating value that we're looking for. We look at and so what we do is in some of these we actually create an energy biscuit. So it's like a briquette, old school briquette, but what it's made out of is things like coffee grounds. Coffee grounds uh, have a great BTU value. Um, we can blend in. Small piece, uh, small uh, streams of everything from flax to agricultural waste. We stay away from the wet organics at this time. There is another train that can be bolted on to take wet food organics and blend it into the system. But everything from agricultural waste to manure uh, to your wooden biomass, we blend it, we test it, we test the, the flue gas or the emissions to figure out how we use it so it's stable, and that also our little friends, the green algae, don't get heartburn because it's not of the ideal blend. So we actually follow it all the way through the food system, if you will, so that what we have is feedstock. Um, I mean, there's crazy stuff out there. We, we have everything from um, mussels. So what in, in New Zealand, where we actually have a, a, a one of our facilities, we have a licensing agreement with New Zealand, and they are past the pre-feasibility stage. So we're into that fun engineering piece, but there's uh, muscles. So there's waste muscles that are going to be blend that can be blended into this. Now they provide a different, you know, chemical balance, but they still provide all the products, and we are diverting it away. But so that there's muscles, there's wood waste, agricultural waste, manure, um, spent grain, uh, spent grain from digesters can be mixed in. So really, yeah, do you want to make a granola bar at the front end or are you making muffins? Like, what is it that you have that's available in your community? Put it in the mixing bowl and we will find a way to put it through. When there is a wooden biomass, because of the value of the wood vinegar or bamboo has great wood vinegar potential uh, with it. There's certain ones that have that stock. We, we blend in stages then. So it drops in into the system. So, um, you know, it doesn't all happen at the same moment but it all ends up in the same place. And we use the, the, the power within the system to, to blend it and also to create the products at the end. So you name it, uh, we've had people ask about it, from tea to coffee, and it is, that's, that's probably the best part is, well, I don't know, let's put it in a box and see what happens. And that's part of what happens at Columbia Falls now, is the batch mixing and testing and lab testing. And then we call a community and say, you bet, this is how much we are looking at. And if you don't have this, then, We'll need something in this height of, of, of waste to blend in. Yeah, uh, very cool. So, yeah, continue on. Talk about the process a little bit more. So once you get, you know, the thin gases that come out of this uh, that go through the Q Energy Junction, there are flue gases that are high in CO2. Um, typically, all of our flue gas comes off. This is sweet, not sour. It's one of those questions that people have asked. Um, it goes through what we refer to as our bubbler. So it uh, allows for direct contact of the flue gas and the CO2 with algae, which is constantly being chained. So it doesn't go into a stagnant environment. And then that algae goes into a bigger pond, into a raceway, which is typically an open environment. Unlike open raceway development in warm climates that you'll see in, in Brazil, in California, uh, in Spain, these big, these big, big ponds, we've designed this to fit on a soccer field, on a football field. We've designed this so it's an enclosed environment that the algae is raised in. Part of that is it removes any potential biological contaminant into algae like you get in a lake. You know. uh, so it creates a really quiet environment for it to gurgle along and for us to inject the flue gas. It also allows us to monitor it. So the whole thing happens inside a dome, inside a structure. Now, the algae will eat it and it will bloom. And then it basically goes almost into a dormant cycle. It get it, and and we don't have to always harvest it. We can allow it. We do, it's not a forced harvest. Sometimes we'll leave a raceway for eight to twelve weeks, and it's just because something else. You know, uh, we're doing a maintenance turnaround, so it's not a forced process. But algae does like night and dark cycles, uh, and it will gurgle at night. It will release certain gases, um, and, which is natural. And what it is, is when that happens inside the facility or inside 
the biodome or the, the photobioreactor, we've created a canopy of plants or vertical farming that now benefit from that natural relief or breathing of the, uh, the, of the algae breathing. So that's where you get this canopy. And that canopy, like planting trees, is a natural filter. So it becomes the final filtration. It's the final piece or layer within the lungs when the algae, uh, with the algae in the raceway. So we get this really cool, wet, grimy, uh, heat bog type environment uh, that's all natural. And it's breathing. We're not forcing it to do anything. There is no forced process uh, with that algae. When we're ready to harvest it, we open up a grain like it is in the bathtub. And it goes down a pipe. And we send it to uh, a couple of different layers of holding tanks. And just like you would get in a natural process, the heavy material drops to the bottom. And that's what we continue on in the harvest. And the light, the, the stuff that floats to the top, is actually brought back to the raceways. And that's actually how we grow the next round of algae. And we feed it and it continues to grow. But the algae that comes out of the bottom is now thick and rich. And we send it to another tank and we do the same process. And then we reapply the final step, a little bit of heat and, heat and pressure. Not a lot of pressure. We're talking 15 PSI. So the entire system uh, is low pressure. The intent is that anybody can operate it. If you have a swimming pool, curling rink, you have a water treatment plant or a sewage pond in your community, you don't need specialized skills to do this. And that's part of the design here. So it goes into a tent. It sits for a day or two. In that time frame, that's where we get really pure methane being produced from it because it's being digested. It's like taking grapes and making wine. We're taking algae and making a biostimulant that can go back into the soil. And we repeat that twice. And at the end of that, uh, that seven days from when it was first targeted, you have a liquid peat bog in your hand to go back and be put into the soil. Yeah, it's, uh, and if it we get in upset conditions. Well, what happens if it doesn't meet sales spec? Well, the best part of it is never wasted. You fix it. You send it back to the front of the train or partway through the train, and it digests a little bit more. Everything goes back into the system. So we actually don't have a liquid waste stream. We don't have anything that goes into the environment that needs to be processed or handled by another system. Yeah. So you mentioned that this is all done within a dome, right? And yeah. you know, you know, from what I know about the process so far, you mentioned Columbia Falls, Montana. Um, up near you, outside of Edmonton. So give us a little insights into like the, the footprint of these things. Where can they be placed? Um, and just the general structure. And I think we'll, we'll be we'll be showing some slides of, of imageries as well of what these things look like. Yeah, and don't let me forget, we have a, a fabulous 3D model now. So I'll make sure I send that to you. Yeah, uh, But the building itself, uh, right now we build it on a 60 by 60 meter uh, pad site. So it's not overly large, depending on where you are. Uh, and we can change the shape. It doesn't have to be a square. It can be done in a train. If you want it as a triangle, we can build it as a triangle. Now, that's the best part. It's very fluid in design. The primary, uh, the, the OCE, the carbon engine at the front end, is modular. 100% modular. It shows up in two CCAMs. So we use CCAMs. Uh, they're painting. Everything shows up, and it is a kit. They are stacked uh, too tall, and that is really where the engine itself lives. And it's 40 by, so it's a 40 meter long CCAM, too tall. Uh, the building itself, the main infrastructure building, is 81 feet across and typically 125 feet long. It's 31 feet high, though. So within that structure, you can actually have an operational mezzanine. You don't actually need an external building. So it really comes down to how, what do you want to do in the building versus do you want a little storefront? Do you want a place where people can come up and see that? Uh, but that building itself, uh, two thirds of it is greenhouse, floor to ceiling greenhouse membrane. And in the middle of the building, which is probably one of my favorite things, is a floor to ceiling membrane. So when you're on one side where the brewery tanks, as I like to call them, and, and, and we're sort of going from algae to peat bog or, um, you know, if you decide you want to make wine, then uh, I'll sign up for that course as well. Yeah, if you're on that side, you can see the raceways on the other side. You can see the Jurassic Park. 
if you will. The, the trees, the, the plants, the yep. LG raceways, your vertical growing operation, you can see from one side to the other. Uh, so it gets this really beautiful fluidity to it inside the structure itself. These are a modular unit. Uh, they're a company called, so we worked with Sprung for a while. They're, they work globally. Uh, but the best part is, is they you stand up like a whaleboat and then literally pull the seam over top. There's no subsurface construction. We don't go below grade. The idea is, is that using existing piping and, and uh, residential low-grade commercial packs, if you will, uh, the, the plastic piping that you see, that's what this is. And it snaps together. So when it's not as cold as it is up here, um, it's basically a 60-day build from once your time your pad is set to when we're actually into commissioning. So from setting your pad and depending on what you want on the pad, uh, warmer climates, probably no need for an apron. We're looking into hempcrete and things of that nature for the apron. And that's just because of the weight to move liquid product around. Uh, moving, uh, trying to move things on gravel is a little bit tough. So you want that smoother surface. But the raceways themselves are in uh, uh, are on an aggregate type floor. Um, and the idea, we also want to be able to build and grow them. So it is. It looks like an ecodome. It's a giant greenhouse uh, that's 31 feet tall that shows up in the middle of nowhere. And then we'll start to power itself. Yeah. Well done. That's uh, it's incredible. So, uh, and there's a kicker to this, right? I mean, the, the greenhouse, you can actually grow food, mm -hmm. right? Or whatever you want to grow. Inside. All year round. So that, that's, that's a bonus, especially for, you know, Northern Alberta. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like it. Uh, but there's, there's energy production. Am I, am yeah, I right. wrong with that? No. And we see a lot in the market now, biomass power. So you're seeing wooden biomass, pelletizer, you're seeing a lot of that come into the market now. Most of them are using wood waste. So they're diverting from logging operations or fire and using that waste. But there's always a portion of that waste that they can't use. Uh, bark is one of the big ones. Bark is, you know, it's a pelletizer and everything else. We love bark. We'll take your bark six ways to Sunday. It's fantastic. Um, but the, the the wood waste itself and the products that go into this are just, you know, they're there in your backyard. And the power we generate is based upon the quality or the mixing, the energy biscuit at the front end. And that's when we come in in the early days and say, so what do you have? So you have corn stover, you have, um, maybe you have corn stover and you have, I don't know, pick another crop that happens. You know, uh, you have flax, and but your community has a huge poplar. Uh, you know, poplars grow like weeds, but poplars also need to be, uh, you know, to be uh, maintained and, and managed. So you do have a wood waste. So we blend it, we chip it, we send it to the lab, we pitch it on the two phase to see what the emissions look like. We model that in a box and go, hmm, this is how much uh, power and heat will come out of your system based on your energy biscuit. So your energy biscuit will be specific to your region. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a pretty neat system to do. And we're looking, we target sort of that one megawatt is sort of that threshold we're looking at. We're not planning to be a, the primary utility provider anywhere. We like the idea of being the redundancy in the system. So a community that buys power, has solar, has a wind farm, but you want to do more. Uh, you want to add another layer to this. We could, you know, you can have a big agroplex, you know, multiple greenhouses. We can tie into swimming pools, skating rinks. Where do you want to put it? And that's the biggest thing is that it is community generated power for the purposes of communities. And that's really where we want to focus. We will have some communities and projects that tie into grid um, as, and they can offset where when the sun is not shining, solar doesn't work. So it comes on as like a battery pack. It's like, oh, you know, we can bring it back up. When the wind is not blowing or you have to, you know, you, you, you need a redundancy and you want to get a redundancy in the system, this falls into that. But we're not looking to have this as the primary. Those are those big biomass power systems that are, you know, 8, 10, 12 ton an hour. We're in that one to two dry ton an hour, depending on your on your mixture in your energy biscuit, so to speak.
And, and what does that mean? If you're going to equate that to layman's terms, like how much power, what, what does that do? Is that in, in like ways of households or, you know, what kind of energy can that actually sustain? So, and I guess that really comes down to region and what they're using it for. But if, you know, you're looking at a hundred volts. Yeah, so if you're running, and that's the other piece of this, I think is the biggest piece to remember. We haven't, we've designed this so that you're not working 24 hours in your community. You go home, you know, the four people working at the facility turn off the, you know, they go home at seven o'clock at night, and any surplus thin gas that is produced goes into a temporary low pressure membrane that keeps the system going overnight. This is not about working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is about lifestyle in the community and all of those pieces. But yeah, you can do a hundred homes. The wood, the, the feedstock input. I mean, it is, you know, it's textbook. What is the feed input? Power output. You know, how big do you want this to be? I think the biggest piece with this is that it's modular. So if you want, if you live in an area that has been plagued by drought and you are looking to recover soils and you want to ramp up your biostimulant product, production to get some of that protein, if you will, the amino acids back into the soil and create stronger root structures in those pieces. We can wrap that up. You, you can do that in two or three days, um, but you can also roll it all the way down. You can idle these facilities all the way down to where it's just basically like a heart murmur, if you will, that it just can sit and idle. You can take two weeks off at Christmas and not have to babysit it. And that is probably one of the best pieces is that it fits the need of a community for that community and is not trying to answer a bigger question um, as serving somebody else. Serve the community first, build the community, the community can grow and, and add components. So if you wanted a second OCE, two C count, we can plug another one in, uh, but then we are going to make sure that, you know, We've got a place for those emissions to go and maybe reconfigure how the LDE is receiving it. Maybe it's a larger bubbler, you know, those pieces. But it's not a complex adaptation to expand or to reduce. Yeah. So if I'm getting this right, we have products, right? We're taking <clears throat> carbon waste, which would normally be waste products. We're making products that, um, you know, are profitable, that, can produce higher quality and quantity of food. Um, we have a power plant that produces energy and it's all done at the community level. Yes. Yep. Solution for communities in your so What's the downside? Um, I think part of it is, one of the downsides is making sure that what we have are producing products that are viable in the community. That what we're not doing is having it, we're not creating a product that needs to be shipped 10,000 miles to be used. So we look at that very closely. So in the greenhouse side, this is where we're going, okay, so what do you want to grow in your greenhouse? You know, what, how do we make, that's a downside, you know, that right now, uh, and not the downside, I, I'd say it's an opportunity, is that's the piece that we have to focus on now. What makes this from a commercial opportunity for a community? Because this is where the opportunity is. It's important to recognize these are owned by communities. We, we want them to be owned and operated by communities. We babysit the operation. We help with some of the sale of the product. We do offtake agreements. But this is about a commercial growth and expansion, bioeconomy for the community. But the downside is that sometimes people come to the table and they want everything or they don't know where to start. And so we've had, that's, the, that's been the downside is making sure we had enough information that we could build out the first couple of branches and then from there grow them into very diverse and different areas. If you look at the one at, uh, the, the one that's now the Horse Lake First Nation facility, um, that's a long way north to be growing algae under natural lighting. You know? Yeah, so we have um, our, our lead biologist is growing algae in her house um right now uh she has a greenhouse uh, but she also is growing small bioreactor of the of the strain that will be at horse lake using water from the area so we don't use potable water we don't use you know we don't use we all everything is natural um but understanding what happens when the light i mean we're coming into our shortest day of the year up here 
our shortest day of the year up here, uh, where we're growing right now, is six hours. Sun comes up, sun goes down. That is a really short time frame for algae, but we haven't had to change it because we're using we grow strains that are comfortable in the region. This is not a this is not a strain that we buy. This is a naturalized strain of algae that goes back into the environment from which it came. But for us, that's probably been one of the downsides. You know, how far north can you go to grow algae? Well, we might be at that threshold right now, uh, but it is making sure that we can actually deliver on the promise. Uh, putting this into a yard, putting this into a backyard, and actually making it work for a community. Now, and I think that's been the barrier to cross in the market. It's great if it's in somebody's backyard and it's a bunch of researchers and white coats running around. So great. You know, engineers and you know, four PhDs, great. Our facilities aren't run by by the by people of that nature and level. They're designed to be simple. They are designed to allow two or three people that anybody can run them. And that has been the biggest barrier to cross understanding how to get there. And now that we're there, that we can have four people that have no idea what an algae raceway is or why those shiny tanks, what they do on the inside, can actually run and operate this in the community. That's the benefit. But that was the barrier. That was the biggest downside. How do we get there? How do we get there and make sure it can happen? Downsides to the system? We trip over them. I, you know, it's it's not a unicorn. It, it has issues, but it's nothing that can't be resolved. I guess that's it. It's that anything that we've run into, we've gone, well, what are they doing in that industry? Because they play with that. You know, so when it came to learning about algae, and none of us had any experience in algae, you need to know that this was not our world. Algae was something that happened in ponds that we weren't supposed to have. You know, but growing it, nurturing and making it do what you want to like, oh, it's pretty smart. It's a pretty smart little microorganism. And it does go dormant. Crazy and hibernate. And that's what we realized. Is that we're like, oh, we don't have to keep it all bubbly and happy all the time. It's allowed to go to sleep and it's going to come back up. Dormancy is, is, is part of a natural process. So maybe the barriers and the downsides have been our learning curve more than the system. But we have people showing up all the time going, hey, can we add this? And we're like, what is that? Sure, why not? Let's pull that on and see what happens. And that's, I think that's the growth. That's the opportunity. And I don't know if it's a barrier other than getting it back, getting into the hands of the communities where it needs to be. Sure. Yeah, well said. Well said, Kari. I guess, you know, if people are like me and they're listening, they're inspired by this. You know, it's it's very encouraging that we can apply technology in, in a way that really works with our natural systems. And, you know, I, there's probably gonna, a lot of people who are going to want to get involved. People are, in, you know, environmentally and socially conscious, right? Investors, um, people who just want to work on a purposeful project, right? So today's December 16, 2021, mm-hmm. you know, as if people want to get involved with this, you know, what, what what's the steps to do so from, you know, an investor standpoint, from buying one of these things or, or buying products? Like what, what do people do? So part of what we've done is we've really created a call a hub and spoke mentality. So we're establishing hubs. So in 2022, you're going to see the lights go on on the hub. And what hubs do is they are uh, extensions of us that are now can facilitate the growth and development of facilities in a region. So we have, we have a group that's in Montana, that they are a hub from Columbia Falls, that their job is to go out. Now, do I think they're probably going to get swamped? Absolutely. But the idea is that we are an extension of them. We are, we're the knowledge corridor that says you somebody's come here and they want to build one in, I don't know, Colorado. And that proxy licensing group comes back and says, okay, this is what they got. We give them the sheet that says check boxes here. This is what we're looking at. So we've got those that that network in place now, which allows us to turn these on. We've also got a fairly, I, I'd say, linear uh, process. That what we're doing is we're being efficient in turning on new facilities. That we have a fairly clear schedule. 
We want to get through a pre-feasibility sort of this time of year. So that comes spring. Uh, we are now into that process where uh, you're, you're, you're getting through your final phases so you can construct it. And it comes on in the fall. And everybody's like, well, why do you want to come on in the fall? Well, it, it, it ties down into the fact that commissioning takes time. You know, training takes time. We train the people that are going to own and operate this. So it's okay if the LG is a little lazy and, and is kind of, you know, late fall going into that. But that also means that your first operating year, your products are ready. You have products in reserve going into the market. So we that's, that's a big part of that timeline and establishment. Um, in January, we have the new uh, a new website coming up that allows people to understand product. Yeah, we are. We're looking for commercial buyers in the sense of being a distributor of the product. Uh, one of the biggest pieces until we are decentralized and have a a large enough web of facilities is making sure that if we have commercial buyers that are housing product instead of shipping everything. North America is not small. So, and we, and I will tell you, we learned a lot about shipping over the last two years when we had products supposed to go to Indiana that wound up in India. That was, that was a good day. All of a sudden, like it's where, and, and, you know, we, we almost to the point of getting a globe out going, I don't even know how that got there, but that's not that's the nature of the last couple of years. But we're looking for that in the market. We're looking for people that help us that know, that know agriculture, that know reclamation, that know those things that say, hey, We'd like a product that we can put on the ground and put into the ground that passes all of the, you know, the, the environmental safety pieces and passes things like it's called a Daphnia test. It, it makes sure that fish aren't harmed by it. They want to know that they can put a product in there. They want to know that they can put it in a playground where there's a pond that no matter how many times you say dogs and kids can't go swimming in it, there's kids wading into it. They want to know that it can go into that environment and it's fine. You, you know, it's okay if the dog eats it. It's okay if your if your toddler eats the mud that this stuff has gone into. It's okay. You know, we're looking for that commercial growth to really get it into the market. Um, so in January, the new website is up. One side talks about product, one side talks about uh, facilities and how to contact us and how to get there. We are at that level for 2022, um, and we'll make the next round of announcements. We've got a new one in the U.S. We're we're right there. Um, it's about to tip over. We've got New Zealand. We have Horse Lake. Uh, we have another uh, two on the Canadian market that have lined up, uh, potentially three. And so I think we're tipping over. Uh, the next piece is is to expand that 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 U.S. footprint. I think we've got a couple of line items that are that have been waiting very patiently for us to get there. So, yeah, I think I think next year we go from the two um, to six, and then from there that really establishes the hub. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of we had to find a way to capture the information from the market because. We, it is. It feels sometimes like a unicorn, and we're not sure how to answer the questions. But we put the mechanisms in place now to be able to communicate out the next ten, the next three steps to get to a facility. Awesome, awesome. Well, well done. I mean, uh, I think with something like this, and what I've seen so far, the challenge is definitely walking that line between urgency and patience. Right, being mm -hmm. patient, making sure that everything is ready to scale, and that you got your ducks in a row. But then also at times hitting that gas pedal when you're like, okay, it's go, go time. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, as we talked to you in the beginning, your lack of sleep over the past yes. years, right? <laughs> no sleep. I'm not a big sleeper. So when we're talking no sleep, I mean, yeah. 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 When, when, when you walk by the grocery store and they just give you the coffee beans at the front yeah. door because they know that that's what you're coming in for is you cross that line. But I think when you say that about being patient, one of the things that we really wanted to make sure we were confident around was the ability for the facility to be easily operated. You know, so, you know, and the ability to turn on and turn off and not have an impact in, in a community. But the other piece was, is that the net benefit of the product. So can you use the product? You can use the product in a healthy environment, in healthy soil. You can use the product to improve land that has been damaged to from phytoremediation and microbial testing. Like we've done those level of testing now. You know, there's a benefit. You know, this stuff feeds microbes. 
know, you're feeding the microbes in the soil. Microbes do good things. So they don't disappear, but microbes do go dormant. So this is that piece that helps to invigorate them. But we we spend the time, we have a patient to do that testing to make sure it can go in the waterways and that, you know, your puppy can drink it. I don't recommend <laughs> not a food supplement, um, but, in, but in, you know, there is no warning label that says it's ingested. There's none of that that comes with the product. It is digested algae. You know, you go swimming in the lake, I guarantee you eat it. You know, it, it's in your system. But we needed to, we were patient because like many people that started to look at this in the early days when it was under an R&D, you, you sort of looked around the corner and you're like, I don't know what that is yet. We spent the time answering so that when it shows up and your your town council, the, the city council goes, so what is that stuff? Well, this is what it is. And here are all the testing that's been done. And here's what it will never do. This is what it won't do. And this is what it does do. So it's, it's not a unicorn, you know, but it does this. And there isn't harm associated with it. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal in yeah. this market. It's it's a pretty darn close to a unicorn. So uh, if people, <laughs> but it is. So it's even narwhal than a unicorn, and I think that's where it lives. Is that you know it's like really? Oh, that thing's real? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's into that work. But I'll t- uh, you're not wrong, Eric. And we looked at this. We, we did. We circled around. We're like, I don't know. But when you talk about what the barrier was when we first got into this, when we first looked at taking on a license and building the first one in Canada, do you know what the gap was? Do you know what our barrier was? Taking an industry dedicated to the green economy, the you know uh, the earth conscious films, that type of level of organics and sustainable farming, and having them recognize that to capture a thin gap, and to ensure that it's being used in the right way and in a safe mechanism, you actually had to talk to your fossil fuel. You had to talk to people that understand gas processing because you can't do one without the other. And when you, those people in the room are like, hey, I didn't know that. You know, the first time somebody realizes that you produce methane from algae, people talk about biodiesel and biodiesel production, but we don't talk about digester gas a lot in North America, as much as they do in other, in, in other countries. But you had to put the two halves of the equation into the room and shake it up. And the engineers that we've had on the most recent bill, they are Alberta Oil and Gas. Cool. You know, they do gas processing. And there are days they're like, so where does this go and what is that? But they understand how to manage thin gas. You know, the products that come out go into the world of sustainable and green farming. What happens is it is a green system, but we've brought everybody to the table. And I think that was the barrier. That was our biggest win. And that's where we finally realized we got this. You know, we've got a turnkey solution using knowledge that's already in the market that allows us to adapt to what is needed out there now. This is an adaptation of skill set, but it makes a huge difference outside. It really does. Yeah. Well done. This is all really exciting. And I guess for people uh, who want to get a hold or want to start learning more, there's, you know, Bioenergy Solutions is, is your company up in Canada, the parent company, the global uh, Flathead Bio Solutions here in in, uh, in Columbia Falls, Montana. And if people want to get a hold of you personally, Kari, how, how do they do that? Uh, we have, you know, so it's Kari at Bioenergy Solutions. Uh, we do have an info email address as well. Uh, but email is probably the best way to get a hold of us right now. And moving forward in January, we'll have that sort of more open forum on a regular basis where we are opening up the door. Um, so that's, you know, email is the easiest way to get a hold of us right now. Uh, and we are setting up uh, investor and development meetings and growth and opportunity meetings uh, in January. So we're starting to set those those slates. Um, and then I guess the other thing is, is that we do have, uh, we do have a, a licensing partner in New Zealand. So we have that distribution list. So if someone's looking to get a hold of Flathead Biosolutions and talk about products and sales and where they're going, um, they are an extension of us. Just like uh, the New Zealand group and the UK group, we have those out there in the market. And if you want to talk about this, we'll help you. You know, time zones are a big deal. 
<laughs> There's nothing worse than that 12-hour time zone piece, but we'll set you up with somebody that you can talk to about this and get you moving in that direction. So we've got that uh, that communication list out there now, ready and available. Right on, right on. Kari, thank you so much for joining me for this. This was uh, an absolute pleasure. And as much as I've kind of already learned about this project, I learned so much more today. And uh, I'm, I'm just really excited for people to to listen to it and, and get on board. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for all the sleepless nights. This is uh, it's, it's quite an exciting project. I think we're just on the tipping point. And this has been fantastic, Eric. And uh, we will definitely feed you more information as we go ahead. And thank you for your time today. It's been great. It's always fun to chat about these things. Yeah, it sure is. Ladies and gentlemen, Kari McDonald. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction. Whatever may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.